Well, good morning again, beloved. If you have your Bibles, take them out, please, and turn with me to Mark chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 35 today and uh, work our way all the way through the end of chapter 5 in a sermon that we've called, How Jesus Deals with Trauma. How Jesus Deals with Trauma. Um, that has become a very popular word, and rightfully so, because our world is filled with trauma. Our world is filled with the kinds of events that um, hurt people deeply. And sometimes that, that hurt uh, sort of encodes itself in the body, in the brain, affects us in such a way that we feel like we are reliving that hurt pretty constantly, even though it may be years ago. Trauma can be debilitating. It can be disorienting. People can find themselves kind of locked into it. And we believe that the Bible is sufficient, that God has spoken in the Word in such a way that He's given us everything we need to know and enough that we need to know in order to follow Him well. Now, that's not to say that the Bible is a sort of mental health handbook. It's not. It doesn't answer all the questions in the world. It doesn't attempt to address all the subjects in the world. And so we praise God for the common grace gift of doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists and things of that sort. But it is to say that what we learn about Jesus in the Bible, what we learn about his kingdom, what we learn about um, his, his call upon us to follow him, well, there, the Bible is perfectly sufficient, it is authoritative, and more than that, it's necessary. It's the necessary word of God for knowing the Son of God and following him, and receiving from him all the goodness that is in him. Even for folks who are dealing with various forms of trauma, which we'll see in our text this morning. So turn with me to Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. We're going to move through four pretty famous scenes from the life of Jesus here. We're going to start out, and we'll see Jesus uh, in a boat with his disciples, and a storm comes over the sea, and the disciples get scared, and, and Jesus calms the storm. That's the first scene. Then we're going to move to a second scene where Jesus um, gets out of the boat, and he's met immediately by a man who's possessed by demons, so many demons that they, their name is Legion, and Jesus heals this man. Following that, Jesus runs into two other people, um, a man named Jarius, he's a leader of a synagogue whose young daughter, 12 years old, is very sick and near death. And he asks Jesus to come heal her. And while he's on the way to heal that little girl, Jesus um, has an encounter with a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, as long as that little girl has been alive. And she has sought to be healed every way she knows how. And she is reaching out just to touch his garment with the hopes of being healed. And she is. In those four scenes, we see something about how Jesus, the Savior of the world, cares for people who are dealing with trauma. Look with me at Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. 
And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, 
who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, cumin, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. In these four scenes, we see various people affected by traumatic events and experiences. Just for little categories for us, there are various forms or categories of trauma. There is acute trauma, not a acute trauma. Trauma is never acute but an acute trauma, a sharp trauma, that's caused by a single stressful or dangerous event. That's what I think we could see in the, in the sort of death of the little girl. That's what we see in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. These are instances of acute trauma. Secondly, there is chronic trauma. Well, that's repeated and prolonged exposure to stressful and uh, dangerous kinds of events that, that leave people um, scarred and, and, and hurt. We see this with the demon-possessed man. And then there is complex trauma. Complex trauma is when someone is exposed to multiple traumatic events, two, three, or more. Uh, and perhaps the, the case with the bleeding woman who was not only um, sick physically, but also entered in, in, into financial ruin, perhaps that's an example of uh, complex trauma in our text. Sometimes beloved suffering's pain seems greater than the Savior's power. This section shows us that Jesus is, in fact, greater than all of our suffering. In his gospel, he provides relief. He provides healing, hope, and wholeness for sinners and sufferers and saints. Let's see how he does that. Let's look first at the acute trauma in the storm in verses 35 to 41. The disciples are in the boat with Jesus at Jesus' request. That's in verse 35. They are following Jesus. They are in the place that they are supposed to be in. And yet, a traumatic event still finds them. We are not exempt from suffering just because we are disciples. The storm, verse 37, strikes the boat. Just because we are riding with Jesus doesn't mean our life will be free from disaster. You and I, we need to have 
enough mature commitment that we can follow Jesus without expecting life to be trouble-free. Acute traumatic events will sometimes happen to us. Now, as many times as I've read this gospel, Wednesday was the first time in my life that I noticed there were other people and other boats out there. Did you see that in verse 36? And other boats were with him. Now, I, I wonder what the people on the other boats were thinking and saying. See, they were following Jesus too, but they didn't have Jesus in the boat with them. They, they couldn't wake up the Savior and ask for help. I imagine there was sheer panic on all of the boats. Here's the thing. Don't think that because you feel nameless and faceless and don't feel like you're having immediate access to Christ, that Jesus doesn't know you and that he won't help you. The folks in verse 36 benefited from the Lord's control of the storm, just as the disciples did who were in the boat with him. Listen, beloved, God is helping us with our trauma, even when we don't sense his presence. Hold on to that. God is at work in our pain and our suffering, even when we don't sense his immediate presence. We can feel as if we can't see him uh, and, and can't wake him and can't get help from him, but that doesn't mean he isn't doing things that will deal with our traumatic experiences. Notice how he responds to his disciples. We see three things here in this text. Number one, he hears their fears. That's verse 38. The Lord was asleep. They had to wake him up. He gets up and responds to them. And from that, I infer at least two things. Number one, trauma ain't convenient. It can't be scheduled. Suffering intrudes into our lives without an invitation. That's part of what makes it traumatic. And then number two, if we're going to respond like Jesus and become a more trauma-informed congregation, then we have to be willing to be interrupted. We have to hear people in their cries. We have to put aside our momentary comforts and desires. We have to welcome the interruption as the chance to minister. That's what Jesus does here. And number two, notice his response, he removes the threat in verse 39. Jesus doesn't leave them in the storm. He didn't let the waves continue to come into the boat. He didn't let the winds continue to blow. He gets up, he rebukes the waves, he rebukes the winds. He says, peace be still, and all was still. He removed the threat. Now, theologically, what we're seeing in this text is that Jesus is Lord over all creation. There's nothing that he is not in control of. But that's a tough teaching, isn't it, when we think about trauma? It means that the Lord could have prevented the suffering, but instead, he allowed it to happen. Now, anyone who's going through uh, acute trauma, who's going through a, a, a seriously distressing and painful event, has likely asked the question, why? If the Lord had control, why did he allow this to happen? I don't know all the whys to anyone's trauma. No one does. No, not even the person who's experienced the trauma. 
sometimes it's just honest to admit that. Uh, this past week, I read of a well-known blogger, Tim Chalice. He and his wife, Eileen, got sudden news that their only son, who was a college student in Louisville, uh, was playing games with his uh, fiance and a few of their friends. He just collapsed and died. No explanation, no medical reason, wasn't in poor health. And Tim wrote a short blog post about it. He admitted that he and Eileen were, were devastated, uh, broken in all the ways that parents would be broken. But one of the most poignant lines in that short blog post for me was when Tim wrote, we don't have any answers to the why questions. That's the reality sometimes. And sometimes admitting that reality is when the healing begins. We don't have always have answers to the why questions, but there is at least one answer that is always true. And we see that in his Jesus's next response. So he removes the threat, then he, um, he, he, he calls them to faith. Verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Over and over again, the Bible, uh, in the Bible, God calls us to reject fear and to practice faith. And sometimes God allows acute traumatic events to happen in our lives to produce in us greater faith in him. That's not all God is doing, but he is never doing less than calling us to trust him. And so if you've got a why question circling in your heart, a why question circling in your mind, you may not find all the answers to, to hang that question on, but there is one at the foundation, one at the root that God has always given us, and that's this call to reject fear and to practice faith, to trust in him. Our regular, consistent spiritual battle with trauma and just with life in general is a battle with unbelief. Our most fundamental and consistent battle is to trust God. And unbelief is that sin that, that trips us up the most, isn't it? Consider the disciples' response. The text says there, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's striking, isn't it? They just see the Lord control the natural creation. And then the Lord asks them, won't they have faith? And the text says they continue in fear. They recognize that Jesus was unlike any other human being. Like, who then is this? Who this brother? Who this cat? And yet, at the same time, they don't resolve to believe in him, but to continue in fear. Not of the storm, but notice now, now they're afraid of Jesus. Fear is sneaky, beloved. And it, it just inserts its way between us and God all the time and keeps us from trusting God and keeps us from the healing that comes from trusting God. So here's the question that I would ask you. When you think about a painful, perhaps debilitating event in your life, has it turned you to God in faith or turned you from God in fear? God intends our pain to turn us toward him. 
in belief, in trust, and in faith. And that's part of how he handles our trauma, by giving us something bigger to trust, specifically himself, by giving us something to trust that's more powerful than the events that rush into our lives and shake us. So is our pain turning us to faith or turning us to fear? Choose faith, beloved. So we come then to the second scene. As I said, you, you can see as we read through this passage that really what's happening here is, is Jesus is kind of moving from tra traumatized person to traumatized person to traumatized person. And Christian ministry can be like that on many days. The, the world is full of people dealing with brokenness, dealing with hurt and shock and anguish from life situations. And sometimes the pain lasts for a long time. It becomes chronic trauma. And that's what we see in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, with the man who is demon-possessed by, by many demons. They have crossed the Sea of Galilee now. They finished their boat ride to the other side. They come to the land of the Gesserines, or the Gerasenes, excuse me, in chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, and as soon as Jesus gets the foot out of the boat onto the land, then comes rushing this man. He's possessed by demons. And I want you to see the profile of this man's life. I want you to see how hard hit his life is, uh, as it's described in verses 2 to 9. Notice, he has an unclean spirit. That's a reference to a demon in verse 2. He lives in the tombs or in the graveyard, verse 3. He was so wild that people couldn't bind him anymore. But, but that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because it means that he's had a long history of being tied up and bound. And surely that would have been a trauma in and of itself to be treated that way. The man is wild with strength. Uh, verse 5, night and day in the tombs and on the mountains, he cries out and he cuts himself with stones. He's a cutter. And it's not just one demon possessing him. Notice in verse 9, there are many so many, they adopt the name Legion. This man is, is definitely living in chronic trauma. And notice the conversation in verses 7 to 13 between Jesus and the demons. The Lord was commanding the demons to come out of the man. And now what you notice is that the demons reply. There's a whole lot of begging going on, right? Uh, the demons were protesting. They first asked Jesus, what, what have you to do with me, son of the most high God? Then they adjure him, a, a fancy word for begging, uh, not to torment them, verse 7. And they, they begged not to be sent out of the region. They, they seem to feel like that's home turf for them. They don't want to be cast out of the Decapolis. And then finally the demons, they beg, well, you're going to cast us out. Send us into the pigs then, verse 12. Just notice, beloved, for those of you who worry about spiritual warfare and, and feel the the, the forces of spiritual darkness, which we sometimes encounter, just notice that when Jesus is on the scene, the demons are on their knees, begging, trembling. Oh no, we, we never need worry about demons if we're Christians, because our Lord strikes terror in their hearts. Now, what's interesting is that the man at this point, he doesn't speak at all. The unclean spirits are the ones dominating the conversation with Jesus. The man seems to have lost all control of himself. He's a prisoner in his own body. 
I mean, even the fact that we don't know his name reinforces how out of control he is. Sometimes trauma is paralyzing like this. People are, can feel more controlled by their pain than anything else, locked inside of it. Again, notice how Jesus deals with this particular situation of, of chronic trauma. Three things. First, the Lord sends the demons into the pigs. Pigs go running off into off a cliff into the sea. Now, the, the point is not what happened to the pigs. The point is Jesus controls demons. As the son of the Most High, he has the power of the Most High. His kingdom breaks the reign and control of demonic powers over people. So where he is, he reigns. Second thing, notice, the Lord restores this man to balance and peace and control. Look with me in verses 14 and 15. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. One of the most popular books available on trauma and healing trauma today is the book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's a well-researched study of, of trauma and its effects on our, on our bodies. And the author talks about the ways in which people who suffer traumatic events, um, how, they, how they protect themselves. They develop certain coping responses. And these protective responses, uh, the author says, act as a kind of shield to protect the person's essential self. So healing trauma involves creating enough safety that the protections are removed and the survivor's true self comes out. Here's how Van der Kolk puts it. Beneath the surface of the protective parts of trauma survivors, there exists an undamaged essence, a self that is confident, curious, and calm, a self that has been sheltered from destruction, destruction by the various protectors that have emerged in their efforts to ensure survival. Once those protectors trust that it is safe to separate, the self will spontaneously emerge and the parts can be enlisted in the healing process. Now, what we see sitting with Jesus in this scene is a man returned to his true self. Not through the means of mental health care, again, though we praise God for mental health care, but he's been returned to his true self. Uh, through the power and the work and the restorative grace of God, the Son of God, the Most High. The man sits there after years of torment as a picture of perfect peace. The Lord Jesus has the power to fix the brokenness caused by suffering, even brokenness caused by demonic suffering. Jesus has power to break brokenness itself. He renews all things and returns it to what it was supposed to be. And this scene, of course, is a preview of the kingdom when it comes in its fullness and the wholeness that the kingdom provides to everyone in it. Notice the third, the third response of our Lord. The Lord then commissions this man to serve the kingdom. The townspeople are afraid, verse 15, 
They hear the story of what's happened, verse 16. They beg Jesus to leave, verse 17. A whole lot of begging going on in this scene. Um, they don't have faith either. Now, here's how you know the man who was once demon-possessed is the person in the scene with the most sanity now and the most clarity. It's because he begs to go with Jesus while the town begs that Jesus would go away. He knows where he ought to be, where the best place to be is. It's with Christ. But now Jesus has another plan for his life. Jesus instead sends the man to his family and friends and the townspeople to tell them what the Lord, how much the Lord has done for him. You see that in verses 19 and 20. So the news of the kingdom goes to the Gentiles all throughout the Decapolis through this man. So not only does Jesus heal the trauma, but he also uses the traumatized. Trauma is not something that keeps you from being useful to God. In fact, the trauma oftentimes sets you up for wider usefulness to God as you testify to what he has done for you. Now, I think there's a hint here about the, the path of healing. The man's call to go tell others what the Lord has done for him is a, is a hint about the process of healing. Let me quote Van de Kolk again from the book, The Body Keeps the Score. As long as you keep secrets and suppress information, you are fundamentally at war with yourself. The critical issue is allowing yourself to know what you know. That takes an enormous amount of courage. It takes enormous trust and courage to allow yourself to remember. You see what she's saying there, what the author is saying there, that, that processing and working through trauma involves sort of remembering the trauma and learning to try to remember the trauma without reliving it um, as in, a, in an intense way. So the faith and courage to talk about what happened in a context of safety and support helps people identify what is happening inside them with the trauma. That process helps to regain some understanding and control the experience. To put it another way, testifying to what God has done for us actually furthers the healing that God does in us. That faith-motivated, courageous act of remembering and telling, remembering and retelling, that is actually a process that helps us with healing. So by God's grace, even the call to witness to what the Lord has done for us helps us to handle our trauma. And perhaps that's part of why, a secondary part of why, Jesus calls his man to go tell his family and friends what the Lord has done for him. Which brings us to the third scene, the complex trauma with the bleeding and broke woman in verses 21 to 24, and then again later in the chapter, excuse me, verses 21 to 34. As we said in the introduction, sometimes people have multiple experiences of trauma. It's not just one event or one thing that happens to them, but multiple things that all have a traumatizing effect upon them. Uh, this is called complex trauma, and that's what we have with this woman. Verse 25 says she had been bleeding for 12 years. That's one trauma, a, a chronic trauma. And as verse 26 puts it, she had suffered much under many physicians 
and had spent all that she had and was no better, but grew worse. You can imagine her frustration. She's tried everything. She's visited every doctor. She's endured embarrassment at social events until she stopped going to parties. She's dealing with constant suffering. She's fought her way through the, the physical pain. Uh, she has had to live with weakness because if you bleed that much, you, your body gets weak. She would have been considered ceremonially unclean in Israel, which means she wouldn't have been able to participate in their public worship. Her body is betraying her. Not only that, she's now poor because of her health condition. You see that? She has spent all that she had. There's nothing left. She's got a broken body and she's broke financially. And now she's trying not to have her hope broken as she comes to Jesus. She sneaks through the crowd, comes up behind the Savior, touches his garment, and is immediately healed. You can see her in verse 28 saying to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Beloved, I want us to know something. Faith can sound like desperation sometimes. We tend to think faith always sounds victorious. If I got faith, I sound confident. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm rocked up and ready. But sometimes it sounds like a last desperate attempt just to get to Jesus. Faith sometimes sounds like just desperation. She touches Jesus' garment immediately. Verse 29, she's healed. Now notice how verse 29 puts it. It's now known that the body records trauma and, and responses to it. But here in verse 29, we're teaching the same thing about healing. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. The Lord felt the power go out of him and want to know who touched him. <laughs> and the disciples are so real sometimes. They're like, man, you see all these people out here? We don't know who touched you. It could have been anybody. The Lord might not have known who touched him, except that the, the woman comes forward and she confesses all that's happened in verse 33. Then we see Jesus' response to this woman dealing with these complex traumas in verse 34. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Notice the three ways the Lord recognizes her there. The Lord recognizes her as his. He calls her daughter. He regards her as family. The Lord recognizes her faith. He recognizes it as genuine. He says to her, your faith has made you well. And the Lord recognizes her restoration. He sends her away in peace and in healing. That's how God cares for those who are dealing with suffering of this magnitude. So, beloved, if you're struggling with some kinds of trauma, notice that the Lord will not turn you away if you come to him. He is the safest person you could ever share your pain with. If you've experienced multiple traumas or one acute trauma or one trauma over a long period of time, there may be several things that you have to share with the Lord. He is gracious and humble and kind and tender enough to sit with you through them all. 
to receive you in them all. Jesus will not crush you. He, he will not reject you. He will not say it's too much and turn away from you. He will turn to you in love. He will welcome you. He will heal you either in this life or definitely in the life to come. Jesus has his arms wide open to you. Come to him. Your trauma does not have the last word. Jesus does. Trust him. And church, if we're going to be a trauma-informed congregation, we will have to grow to be more like the Lord. We will have to slow down, even in the crowds, enough to notice people trying to reach out to Jesus, people struggling to get to him and to understand him. We'll have to recognize faith in its many forms, including desperation. We will have to give to people the message of peace with God and peace within that comes from faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to have to be gospel people with a gospel message, but we're going to have to have a, a pace of life and an openness to life that welcomes the interruption and that sits with people. Which brings us to our final, our final scene. Here we see the acute uh, trauma of death, verses 21 to 24, that last scene. This is probably the most heartbreaking scene. There's a ruler named Jarius. He, he leads one of the synagogues in the area. He comes to Jesus on behalf of his little girl. And this is one of the reasons you know he's a good father. Uh, he comes to Jesus on behalf of his little girl. That, that shows he cares for his little girl. But in coming to Jesus as a synagogue ruler, he might have even been risking his position. But that's nothing compared to the well-being of his daughter. And he asks Jesus, he says, come, lay hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus goes away with this man. And on the way, they get delayed. That's when they bump into the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And as soon as Jesus heals that woman, they, they start the journey again to Jairus's house. Um, but that's when they get news from Jairus's house that, verse 35, the daughter has died. Jesus says plainly in verse 36 what is perhaps the main message and the main theme over this entire section of Mark's gospel. He says there, do not fear, only believe. Only believe. Do not fear. And that is the challenge that trauma and suffering of all kinds present to us. Will we walk by fear or walk by faith? Will we trust in God even when the circumstances tell us to run and hide? The Lord says, do not fear, only believe. So in verse 37, he goes with Jairus and he takes um, Peter and uh, John and James and they go into the house. Verse 38, the place is already full of commotion. Uh, the, the, the weeping women of Israel are there. The professional mourners are there. And they're making a big commotion, weeping and crying loudly. And Jesus tells the crowd that, why are you making all that noise? The, the child's not dead, verse 39. But the crowd laughs at him, verse 40. Isn't it interesting how quickly they go from all this loud crying to laughing at Jesus and mocking him? Crowds are like that. That's why crowds are not safe generally for the traumatized. But Jesus ignores them. He enters the house, takes the girl by the hand, and commands her to rise. Verse 42 says, immediately the girl got up and began walking, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. 
amazement. The parents go from weeping to wonder when the Lord raised their daughter. Now we see his power, not just over storms, not just over demons, not just over the body, but we see his power over death itself. This little girl's resurrection returns joy to her parents. But Horizon is also a commercial for the great resurrection when all the dead in Christ shall be called forth from the grave and be caught up together to meet him in the air. What, what Jesus does for one in this scene, he will do for millions in the resurrection. The dead in Christ, again, shall meet him in the air. The trauma of death meets its match in the power of Christ. To quote Sam in The Lord of the Rings, after they have destroyed the ring and destroyed Sauron, he's having a conversation with Gandalf. He's noticing how the world has changed, and he says to Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? The gospel says, yes, yes, everything that was sad will be unwritten and made untrue in the new world of the resurrection, in the fullness of God's kingdom. That's the promise and the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life is not this life made a little bit better and stretched out for a long time. Eternal life is a whole other kind of life, a whole other quality of life, absent all the effects of the fall, all the pain of sin and suffering, all the blemishing and brokenness of the world. Through the death, burial, and resurrection, everything is going to come untrue. Everything that's sad or bad or wrong or evil. Everything broken will be unbroken and made whole. And beloved, that everything? Well, that's you and me. It's not just the world of inanimate things or plants and animals. Most specifically, that's you and me. Everything sad in our life will become untrue in the presence of Christ. He will rewrite the universe. He will remake us in his image and his likeness. And we will be satisfied on the day of Christ. My non-Christian friend, I don't know what suffering has invaded your life. I don't know how brokenness shows up in your desires, in your thoughts, in your habits, and even in your own body. But we have been looking at the one who can heal it all. We've been looking at the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He died for it all so that he could redeem it all. He rose for it all so that you can have a brand new life, an abundant life in replacement of this broken life. Everyone who believes on Christ is born again. Everyone who puts their faith in him will have him as their ultimate savior and healer. He may remove the traumatizing event instantly. He may trust you with that trauma for years. But in every case, Jesus ultimately heals all who trust in him. He heals us of sin. He heals us of the scars of sin. He heals us completely 
with his love. What God offers you through his son is this remarkable healing of everything that's sad and bad and wrong, which will become untrue in him. What he calls you to do, as he has called the people in this chapter to do, is believe in Jesus. Repent of your sin, turn away from them, put your trust in him, put your pain in his hands, put your guilt in his hands, put your shame in his hands. Call upon him that he would rescue you from sin and call upon him that he rescue you from suffering. He's faithful, he's kind, he's loving. This is how he treats the traumatized. Let's go to him for help. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do give you praise that you, you don't crush the broken. You don't snap in half the weak. We give you praise that you are patient and gentle and lowly and kind to all those who come to you. We pray that you would give grace even now to, to, to move people to come to you, to trust you, to open their lives before you, to see in your word how you deal with so many cases of, of fear and brokenness and shame and how you make them all whole. And you're still doing that. And we pray that you would do that even now. As people have heard your word, as they have read Mark 4, we pray that you would be healing them. They, like, they might, like the woman with blood, feel it in their bodies. That they would know it in their souls. They would trust themselves to you, a gentle and faithful Savior. Grant grace, O oh Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.